Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is the philanthropist Melinda Gates. She's a computer scientist by training, but her status as one half of tech's original power couple has put her in a rare position. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which she co-founded and runs with her husband, is the largest private charitable organisation in the world. It's given away over $45 billion since 2000. And it's in a position of power that's drawn increasing scrutiny this year, with critics questioning the influence of wealthy givers. But her current privilege belies the fact that she was once pushed almost to the point of quitting by the tech industry's hostility to women. In America, women hold just 25% of jobs in computing and leave the tech and engineering sectors at twice the rate of the men. Examples of the lone male genius, men like Steve Jobs and, of course, Bill Gates, still loom large. So this week we're asking, how do our own behaviours need to change to advance women's equality in both the workplace and on the home front? Melinda Gates, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. Melinda, your book, The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World, is a manifesto, but it's also a memoir. So what is The Moment of Lift for you? The Moment of Lift for me is when the barriers that hold women down are lifted and they can rise to their absolute full potential in life. Give me a few examples. Flesh that out if you could. Child marriage in many places in the developing world, not having access to contraceptives, which allows women to time and space the births of their children is another barrier. Um, there are other things in the developing world that we don't often talk about, but female genital cutting or not having access to high quality education, that's an enormous barrier. So they sound like areas that principally affect the developing world. Are the challenges that you're seeing for the moment of lift for women very different in rich countries uh, to the way that they are in countries that have more structural problems that are holding back women? Well, I think there are some issues that are universal. So for instance, abuse. A third of women are abused around the world. I don't care if you're in a high-income country, middle-income, or low-income. That silences a woman's voice, and it takes away her self-confidence. In places like Europe or the United States, a particular issue in those countries, but of course they also apply to many middle- and low-income countries, is you know we don't have enough women's representation on boards. In the U.S., less than 5% of Fortune 500 companies are run by a female CEO, Around the world, not very much money goes into women-led businesses. So, for instance, in the United States, for venture capital, less than 2% goes to a woman-founded business. Those are barriers that hold women back. And in particular, in technology, it's super important that we look at those barriers because tech is becoming pervasive. And if more women don't have a seat at the table, we're also baking bias into our systems that we're going to use and are using worldwide. 
I'm going to come back to technology in a moment if I could, but just to, to stay a bit on the memoir aspects of the book, there are some very personal moments, and you talked about an abusive relationship in the book. You've talked about struggling to have equality in your marriage with Bill. What did those experiences teach you? Well, in, in the case of the abuse and the reason I wrote that page in the book, which was a previous relationship, um, I wrote about it because it is the experience of millions and millions of women around the world. And honestly, it took away my voice and it took away my self-confidence for many, many years. And so I learned that we have to speak up and change that. We also have to look at the full spectrum because it's not just being in an abusive relationship, but even if you're harassed at work, in the United States, a woman who's harassed at work leaves her job at an 80% rate within two years. So I learned those are all issues we absolutely have to face as society. And when you talk about equality in your marriage, and you, and you give examples where you seem to have sort of actively worked on that, your husband volunteering to, to drive a child to school twice a week. But can you honestly say you've got full equality in your marriage? I can honestly say I have full equality now in my marriage. Bill and I are co-founders of the foundation. We are both executives there that make full decisions at, on the strategies at the foundation. And at home, we are absolutely equal partners in raising our children and doing the tasks that need to be done. And part of the reason I bring up this issue about how I got equality in my marriage and why it's so important is because I want people to see that our economies are built on the back of women's unpaid labor at home. In the U.S., for instance, a woman spends 90 minutes more a day doing unpaid work at home than a man. In India, a woman spends five hours more a day doing unpaid work in her home than her husband does. And across the world, that adds up to seven years of a woman's life. So if we don't look at all of these assumptions we have made about our home life, both men and women, and we don't redistribute the tasks, then women don't get to do some of the other productive things they want to do in society. But a lot of that is about unpaid labor in the home and wealth cures that to a certain extent. Anyone who can afford to have more help at home. I mean, let, let me ask you a cheeky question. Who does the laundry? Would you each do the laundry or would, be the, would one of you be more likely to do it or get someone else to do it? I think just for us, just like in anyone else's home, that if you have resources, of course, there are things that are more efficient to farm out to someone else. But there are things in our home, I use the example of dishes. You know, we could have somebody else do our dishes after dinner, but we don't choose to do that because we want to role model for our kids, you know, what it's like to actually work on things together as a family. So I tell the story of, you know, we were all five of us. We have three children doing the dishes after dinner. Um, but one night I realized I was kind of frustrated and I realized, hey, after everybody else melted off to go upstairs, you know, Bill to his desk, our kids to do homework, I was still down in the kitchen for another, you know, 15 or 20 minutes doing some of the last minute tasks. And so I had to say to everybody the next night, not very nicely, hey, nobody leaves the kitchen till mom leaves the kitchen. <laughs> and guess what? That extra 15 minutes got distributed really quickly between all five of us. And we each spent about three minutes doing something. And we all went upstairs together. Melinda, I, I, feel, I, need, I feel I need you right round at my house. So let me give you an example. Uh, last night, I started to defrost the fridge, forgot. And I, w I won't denounce which member of my family live on the podcast. Came upstairs and she said, 
there's water coming out of the fridge. So tell me, what should I have done? And I think you, in that case, you used to say, what do you think you should have done? <laughs> yeah, I did try that. But are you suggesting that I'm, I'm now teasing a little bit, but the women themselves should just be much more assertive when they find it. I think perhaps in a household where everyone is thinking about equality, it might be a bit easier than in a household where people are actually trying to sort of get back up to the bedroom because they don't want to think about equality of, of tasks. Right. I think we're all in different places on equality in our homes, both in terms of how we think about it and what we want. But this is one of the reasons I bring it up is I think we have to constantly look at it in our homes. And people make different choices when they first get married, at the birth of their first children, and as their parents get older. And so I think we just need to constantly look at it. And I even talk in my own marriage about how I brought certain bias into my own role in the household, as did Bill. And so it's a constant, what I call work in progress. And I want people to just look at it in their own homes, because when they start to do it, then they start to realize, hey, we can free up some time here and redistribute the labor. Do you think that there is a read across between the way we live at home and what happens in the workplace. You deal with both uh, in your book very eloquently. There are, of course, the examples, and I think you touched on it earlier, about how do we want tech companies to be? What do we want the culture of our offices to be? Are are these two things very closely related, or are we, sometimes women included, two slightly different characters or different people when we're at home and when we go into the office? We have told women as a society for very long, when you show up in the workplace, you show up like this. And what we're seeing around the world is when women show up in the workplace, they're starting to be able to be more themselves. And they're starting to be able to name the things that aren't right about the workplace. And what I know is that people around the world are happier, men and women, when they can show up as their full authentic self at home, in their community, and in their workplace. And so, yes, I think if we start to look at this in our homes, it will absolutely change in the workplace. And you've described the male-dominated environment you encountered first at Microsoft when you worked there. Just draw us a picture of that and how you changed it or think it could change further. I can only name my experience, but when I started there, I was one of 10, a class of 10 MBAs. I was the only woman and that was okay. I had worked around a lot of males and I enjoyed that uh, in computer science in college because I have a computer science degree. But I did find the culture early on at Microsoft. Um, I loved, loved, loved creating the products, but I found it abrasive and I almost left the company because of it. But then I decided to just try on being myself. I didn't actually think it would work very well and to just be the collaborative leader I wanted to be. And over time, I found that there were many, many, many people in the company who wanted to work the way that I did. So by the time I left uh, the consumer division with the birth of our first daughter, I was running a team of 1,700 people, an extraordinarily high IQ, highly talented team of men and women who just wanted to work in a different way. And I think if women can show up the way they want to show up at the workplace, we will change the workforce. But you took some time off to concentrate on your family, which is often what a lot of women say they'd like to do, but be able to come back in and come back full tilt to the workplace. And sometimes that's hard. How would you suggest that we break down those structural barriers? We often demand it. Some people preach it. Companies kind of half do it. Yes, I think there's several things we need to do. First of all, in countries, including my own, we need to have really robust paid family medical leave 
practices and policies, not just for women to take time off at the birth of the first child, but for men as well. We know from great research that if a man takes time off with the birth of the first child, they participate more fully at home with raising the child. So I think that's one thing we need to do. It also needs to cover elderly care because we have aging populations and more men and women are taking care of their elderly parents. Um, and then we need to make it easier for women that when they do come back after paid family medical leave, that there's a transition to help them back into the workforce. Because again, if you've been out for three months or four months or sometimes six months, women will tell you they've kind of lost their self-confidence a bit. And so they need to know, no, we're going to bring you back up to speed on exactly where we are in the business. And we're going to mentor you through that. It might take three weeks or a month. And then you're fully back into your productive work mode. But, you know, it does seem odd that the Gates Foundation just cut some maternity leave commitment from 12 months to six months. How did you feel about that? Yes. So we have the most generous paid family medical leave policy with this new policy in the United States. And so what we did was we originally tested a one-year policy, and we found that the balance between family life and work life was too tricky. And so what we chose to do was still have the most robust uh, family paid family medical leave policy, but we have changed it to six months. And we think that's right for both the business and for the families that we're trying to support. But, but just to sort of press you on that, couldn't any business make that case? We tried something a bit more outlying, which a lot of women would like, or a lot of families, men in families would like too. And then we just found, well, it wasn't so great for the business, so we cut it. I mean, why would that not apply to almost anything that you could cut back, which seems to be a little bit in attention with some of the values that you've espoused? So I think we always have to look at our policies in any business setting and in any community setting and say, does it work well to balance for both the work and the family? And so I don't know what's right for every single business, but I know what's right for the foundation work and what we're trying to do in the world to both support men and women who are having young children and families and to support the work that needs to get done at the foundation. There's a new wave of criticism, I think it could fairly be said, against wealthy giving. We've seen a lot of of critics saying philanthropists have held the ring for quite a long time and they've been able to determine how they spend their money. Do you think that there is a reasonable criticism that philanthropy can be too important, can distort policy outcomes? Well, I think... Everyone needs to be cognizant, and particularly philanthropists, of the role that philanthropy plays. And all philanthropy can do is be that catalytic wedge. It is actually a tiny fraction of the giving that goes on around the world. But what philanthropy can do is to try things, to experiment, where you wouldn't want a government to experiment with your taxpayer's money. But it's up to philanthropy to take those experiments on, measure them, and if they work, then have government scale it up. And everything philanthropy does has to be in conjunction with government, private sector, and civil society. So I believe it has a role, but it's a limited role in that ecosystem. Sure, but you could take the view of someone like Rutger Bregman, whose argument is philanthropy as he sees it 
is excessive because a lot of very wealthy people weren't taxed enough in the in the first place and the money should have gone back into the state coffers to start with. Yes, and so Bill and I have been very outspoken that we believe the tax policy in the United States needs to be updated. High-income people in the United States should certainly pay more than middle-income, and middle-income should pay more than low-income. So every country has to look at its tax policy and update it over time, and it's time the United States does that. We don't believe in the great inequality that is going on in the United States. And so it is time for that tax policy to be looked at and to be updated. The Trump administration is proposing to change Title X funding. That's the money helping women access cervical smears, breast cancer screenings, among other services. There are big arguments, and we won't do all of them today, about this present administration and where it leaves women and health care. Overall, how concerned are you about it and where would you most like to shine a light? I am deeply concerned about the proposed cuts that this administration continues to make against women's health. And the particular one that you're speaking about with Title X, that disproportionately affects poor women in the United States. And I think that is tragic. And so luckily, the courts have upheld that funding. But what it means is that low-income women in the United States without that funding will not have access to long-acting contraceptives. And yet we have fabulous research, not only around the world, but in two states in the United States where when low-income women have voluntary access to long-acting contraceptives, it gives them a much better chance of climbing out of poverty, of continuing their education and going on into the workforce. So that change to me makes absolutely no sense. In the past, I, I haven't interviewed you before, actually, but I have interviewed Bill. I got the feeling that you didn't like going into battle against the Trump administration. You sound a bit more outspoken, particularly on this, this issue. Is that right? I am very outspoken on this issue. And we need to stand up and say what is right in society. And I will tell you that rolling back Title X makes absolutely no sense. And are you bringing that to the president's attention? Absolutely. We have record numbers of women in Congress. We've also had a lot of women's activism and a lot of talk about women's empowerment. And, and you take it on in your book from your point of view. How optimistic are you that America is making progress overall on this? Because a lot of women probably feel that this has been a very difficult time, very trying time under the administration when it comes to women and to what they might achieve. Well, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because equality cannot wait. And one of the great things that I think we all saw happen in the midterm elections in the United States is women came out in record numbers to run for federal government offices and run for Congress, run for state houses and state administrations. And so I think that's a phenomenal thing. And I want to make sure this moment in time that the window does not close. The window's open because of the Me Too movement and because of women running for office. And we need to keep moving that forward and looking at all of the barriers. We're all excited about how many women have now gotten into Congress in the United States, but it's still less than 25% of Congress. And at the current rate, even though we're optimistic, it's 60 years till we have parity in our own Congress. That is far too long, in my opinion. And that's why we have to all look at these barriers and men and women have to work to break them down. 
And are any women that you've got your eye on in the upcoming presidential race, anyone catching your attention? I certainly have my eye on lots of women and men, but it is far too early to name a candidate. Do you think you will see a female president of America in your lifetime? Yes. <laughs> are you going to give us a bit of a timeline on that? I mean, I hope I live. If if I live, uh, you know, six months, no, because the, the administration's not going to change. But, you know, I'm hoping that I'm going to live another good, you know, 45 years. And so absolutely, there will be a woman president in my lifetime. Melinda Gates, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'd love to know what you think on the gains or pitfalls of philanthropy, whether things are getting better or worse for women overall, and when will we see a female president of America? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.